Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to the Long Read from Stuff. This week's story is called The Electric Lake. It's by Stuff National correspondent Charlie Mitchell, who joins me now. Hi, Charlie. Hello. So this is something of a companion piece to your last effort on the long read. Uh, that was The Disappearing River, the Manuherakia River in central Otago. Uh, this one, though, is about a lake. So uh, set it up for us. What's this lake? Yeah, so this is called Lake Onslow, and it's in central Otago, not very far from the Manuherakia, actually. Um, and it really is kind of an unremarkable lake in most respects. Uh, we, we typically would not even bother talking about it, really. It's small, artificial mostly a place to to fish for trout and that's really about it uh but but very recently has become possibly the most significant body of water in New Zealand and that's because it has this extraordinary potential to hold large volumes of water which can be used to generate electricity um and and this has sort of been around for a long time but it's only in the last few years or so that the potential of this of this small lake has been realized and essentially what we're talking about here is what is sometimes called a pumped hydro scheme. So people probably know what a hydro scheme is. It's, it's you know, what supplies most of our electricity. You have a big dam with a pool of water, which you release down a pipe, which generates electricity. And this is kind of similar in some ways, but it's um, essentially you have two pools of water instead of one, and you can sort of spill and suck water between the two as much as you want to generate electricity when you want it. Um, and, and we've never had one of these in New Zealand for a combination of reasons, really. Uh, Lake Onslow is probably the only place in New Zealand where you could have a very large one of these. Um, and so that's what the government is looking at at the moment, is whether you could turn this, this small, unremarkable lake into a, a massive, massive store of energy that could essentially help us electrify the entire country. Right, so the idea is that this is going to be sort of evening out the supply, is that right? Because lake levels get low, water gets scarce at certain times. This takes care of that, is that right? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the idea. Um, we have what is sometimes called the dry year problem. We have these hydro lakes in the South Island, obviously, which uh, we use to generate most of our electricity. Um, and they've been fantastic in doing that. They're very reliable. They give us cheap, renewable energy. But you can have problems because... They are reliant on the weather, and sometimes it just doesn't rain for a long period of time. The lakes get low, and you sort of have to fill in the gaps. And, and what we've done is to, to burn coal and, and gas, essentially, to, to fill in those gaps, um, which is inconsistent with, with our climate change obligations, of course. So we're trying to figure out how to minimise or completely remove burning those fossil fuels while also accommodating a very large increase in demand for electricity, um, which is a very tricky balance um, to strike. And Lake Onslow sort of fits in perfectly there because you essentially have this giant, giant store of electricity you could call upon whenever the the lake levels get low, um, and you can sort of fill that gap with this one massive project that's out of the way. I love it when stories take a subject that's not uh, super compelling in and of itself, like hydroelectric energy, and make it compelling, which this story does. Why, why were you drawn to this? What's interesting about this story for you? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. This is one of those stories, I mean, you'll be familiar with this, um, sometimes where it's really hard to decide what the angle is, what we'd call the angle. Um, there are so many different aspects of this that are interesting in their own right. I mean, it's a story about the economy, it's about infrastructure, it's about climate change, biodiversity, all of these things. So you sort of have to kind of pick the most interesting element of that. For, for me, the thing that really struck me about this story was actually a person, um, Earl Bardsley, who, who came up with this Lake Onslow concept in 2005. Earl Bardsley, he is a hydrologist at the University of Waikato, and he sort of outlined this idea um, in 2005 in a very sort of humble journal article. Um, and it's you'd expect something on the scale to be a bit of a bombshell. I mean, he was proposing the largest pumped hydro scheme in the world, essentially. And it's, it sort of went nowhere when he when he put it out. The reasons are quite complicated, but essentially he could not get funding to research this any further. Um, the fact that it's sort of come around again nearly 15 years later sort of hit everyone by surprise. It's kind of interesting that he sort of stuck with this you know, idea that he came up with sort of on a whim um, and it's sort of plugged away at it. Um, and, you know, it, several people told me that if this goes ahead, this would be the most significant project ever to emerge from a from a university, which is quite incredible. Um, you know, if you think about major projects, they usually come from you know, a board of experts or just emerge from the Wellington bureaucracy somewhere, but this was just one man who had quite a good idea, struggled to make it work, but has sort of uh, been vindicated in a lot of ways now that it's been taken seriously and, and could become a reality. All right, thanks, Charlie. Time to go meet Earl then. Here is Adam Dudding reading Charlie's story, The Electric Lake. Stand on the shore of this sleepy lake today, and you might be among the last. The haphazard fishing huts and their orbiting long drops gone, the sprawling expanse of irrigated pasture, soon to be lake bed, a stunningly unique wetland, obliterated to save the environment. As far as lakes go, Onslow, installed high in a basin above Roxborough in central Otago, leaves much to be desired. When you first see it, after rattling over the pothole-filled dirt road, it could be mistaken for a puddle. It is wide and shallow, water oozing into the crevices of schist rock, barely deep enough in parts to cover the ground beneath. From above, it gives the impression of pancake batter spread too thinly on a frying pan. On a late summer's morning, fog draping the treeless hilltops, the only sign of life in any direction is cattle from a bordering farm trundling through the water. Onslow was created by damming the Teviot River at the end of the 19th century, forming a reservoir of water to service the gold mines. When they went bust, it was used for a small hydro scheme, which still operates. The lake is best known today as one of the better trout fishing spots in central Otago, and not much else. But seemingly out of nowhere, Onslow has become perhaps the most important body of water in New Zealand. It holds the secret to ending the burning of coal for electricity, and could preserve and restore the scenic beauty of iconic lakes and rivers. It could power hundreds of thousands of electric vehicles, create thousands of jobs, keep the lights on through the winter. For this to happen, Lake Onslow 
would need to be turned into a massive battery. Not made of lithium, made of water. If exploited to its potential, this puddle could, at a given moment, become a reservoir holding onto much of the country's electricity. The concept was first articulated in 2005, but largely forgotten afterwards. Now, its time has come. After initial unease about the project, the government has put $100 million into investigating its potential. If it happens, it will be the largest infrastructure project pursued in New Zealand for nearly half a century. It would forever change the country's electricity system and permanently shift the market away from fossil fuels. Locally, it would create thousands of jobs. The project has tailwinds. Labour's election policy of 100% renewable electricity likely requires the Onslow project, or something like it, to go ahead. Some environmentalists have cautiously supported the scheme as a method of combating climate change. Local authorities, keen for an economic boom, are on board. By the end of the year, we'll know if this lake will be transformed. Can anything stop it? Nationally, significant infrastructure projects follow a process. Think of a motorway. The idea will come from a government department, usually a team of bureaucrats or experts, and be articulated through a policy document. From there, it will enter the pipeline of potential transport projects subject to funding. That funding will come from the government, which will need to decide what types of transport it will fund and to what extent. The motorway might be announced, then cancelled, then uncancelled. In any case, hundreds, if not thousands, of people will be involved in its inception. Onslow would be larger than any single roading project built in this country in recent memory. And it emerged from a team of one. Dr Earl Bardsley, a mild-mannered hydrologist at the University of Waikato, with an interest in geography, outlined the idea in a brief 2005 article in the Journal of Hydrology. His interest was not economic or even climate change related. His problem was erosion. Bardsley was worried about the state of some of New Zealand's scenic southern lakes. Specifically, erosion appeared to be biting at their edges, filling gravel and sediment into glacially fed waters known for their immaculate quality. The cause? Electricity. These lakes, among them Tekapo, Pukaki and Hawia, are large stores of potential energy and supply the water that powers most of the country. The constant rise and fall of water to generate electricity corrodes the soft, sandy edges of the lakes. When water levels are low, the lakes can look ragged and depleted. Bardsley's idea was to move this storage function elsewhere. Instead of calling upon iconic features of the landscape to serve as batteries, what if instead we plonked that potential energy in a less sensitive environment, somewhere rocky and out of the way, a place tourists would never bother to visit? That would require a lot of storage, Bardsley recalls. We're talking about cubic kilometres of water here. So it wasn't that hard to look around and find, effectively, the only place that could do it. To make it work, the lake would not just store water. It would need to be a pumped hydro scheme, something never previously built in New Zealand. This requires some explanation. Hydro schemes are simple. They combine water and gravity to produce electricity, 
more precisely, a river is dammed to create a pool of water which falls down a pipe and through a turbine which spins and produces electricity. Hydro is an efficient way to produce power. It's dauntingly expensive up front, but has limited ongoing carbon emissions and can provide large amounts of electricity at short notice reasonably cheaply. But it's not perfect. Hydro can be inefficient. Once the water has been spilled, it's gone. To generate more electricity, water needs to fill the lake behind the dam, a process vulnerable to the whims of the weather and long-term climate patterns. At the other extreme, when the lakes are too high, water needs to be dumped, the equivalent of throwing valuable product from the back of a truck. Pumped hydro sidesteps these problems. Instead of one water source, there are two, an upper and lower reservoir connected by a tunnel. When water is spilled from the upper reservoir to generate electricity, water can be sucked up from the lower reservoir to replace it. You might be wondering, wouldn't sucking up water use electricity and make the whole exercise a waste of time? Well, kind of. Pumped hydro schemes do use more electricity than they generate. They're worthwhile because of careful timing. By releasing water when electricity demand is high, a pumped scheme makes money by selling power to the grid when it's most needed. It then sucks water when demand and prices are low. The operator makes a profit by buying low and selling high, and electricity users benefit with more supply during demand peaks. In this respect, pumped hydro is ingenious, but finding a suitable location is almost impossible. You don't just need one large water source, but two, close enough to connect with a tunnel, but at different elevations so the spilled water can generate force. And so Earl Bardsley, poring over a map, thought about this long list of criteria. A basin, high up and out of the way, rocky, could be filled with water, and near a large river or lake. It didn't take long. It pretty much defines Onslow, he said. On the other side of Otago, in a narrow canyon near Arrowtown, lie the remnants of the first hydro scheme ever built in New Zealand. The Bullendale scheme was built amid snow tussocks in 1885 and was used to power a stamper connected to a small underground mine. It was the first industrial use of electricity in New Zealand and among the first of its kind in the world. The concept was simple, use the abundant supply of water to spin a wheel, generating electricity to be transmitted on a copper wire. The powerhouse at Bullendale was remote, installed beneath a sheer cliff with no road access. Builders had to carry the materials on their backs along a winding goat track. It still worked, powering the stamp battery three kilometres away on the other side of a spur. Today, more than half of New Zealand's national electricity grid is hydropowered, a feat enabled by steep geography and colossal volumes of water. It puts Aotearoa in an enviable position. Because our electricity system runs largely on renewable sources, it contributes very little to our climate footprint relative to other countries. By running as many things as we can on electricity, we can use electrification to decarbonise the economy. There's a really widespread consensus that any sustainable energy system will have electricity as its major energy carrier, says Dr Ian Mason, an energy researcher at the University of Canterbury. Hydropower has come with costs, 
economically, socially, and environmentally. The Ohakuru Dam on the Waikato River, built in the early 1960s, destroyed Waihitapu sites and forced the relocation of a marae. It also destroyed around 200 hot pools and dozens of geysers, including the Minganui, the second largest geyser in the world. A globally significant ecosystem was erased for a dam that today supplies barely 1% of the country's installed generating capacity. The construction of the Clyde Dam in the 1980s required flooding the Cromwell Gorge, forcing many residents and businesses from the land and burying one of the most beautiful landscapes in the country. The historic town centre of Cromwell was submerged, as was part of the community of Lowburn. Perhaps most famously, the government in the early 1960s arranged a deal with Comelco, now Rio Tinto, to flood Lake Manapouri in Fiordland, creating a massive reservoir of water for exclusive use at the company's aluminium smelter at T.Y. Point. It was a fashionable idea at the time, use Aotearoa's prodigious rainfall to generate electricity, which could be sold to large manufacturers willing to set up business here, creating an export industry that wasn't farming or tourism. One historian later called it the kilowatt cult. The environmental impact of the Manapuri scheme proved a step too far. After an unprecedented public campaign, the plan was dropped and a much smaller scheme was built on the lake. The saga is widely seen as the beginning of the country's environmental consciousness, among Pākehā, anyway. The rapid development of hydropower, for all its downsides, meant New Zealand's electricity grid was 90% renewable by the 1950s. It hasn't matched that peak since, but it has remained among the most renewable heavy schemes in the world. After many years of stagnation, the last substantial increase in hydropower storage occurred in 1977, the sector is starting to change rapidly. Renewable sources such as wind and solar have become more affordable than their fossil fueled counterparts. According to recent estimates, the electricity supply will be 95% renewable by 2035 without any government intervention. So why bother with a mammoth like Onslow? In this case, the last 5% is the most difficult to achieve due to what's sometimes called the dry year problem. This is a bit of a misnomer. It's really a dry three months problem. Because the electricity system is so reliant on hydro, bouts of dry weather can stress the system. Every seven or eight years, a prolonged dry spell will leave the lakes nearly barren. In those years, power companies scramble to fill the gaps while the rest of us watch lake levels like it's a national pastime. Because wind and solar are variable generators, they produce electricity when the weather suits, they aren't a reliable backup for filling those gaps. Coal and gas are reliable, but are being phased out for climate reasons. Lithium battery storage remains prohibitively expensive. Most rivers that could be dammed already have been. This has been the biggest barrier to decarbonising the electricity sector. How do we fill those gaps? Up until now, says Dr Jen Purdy, a senior research fellow at the University of Otago, we've used coal and gas, which we can just store and turn on when the water's missing. If we're 100% renewable and we have a wet year, that's fine. The hydro can be held back when the wind's blowing and let go when the wind's not blowing. If we're 100% renewable and we have a dry year, We've got a 5,000 gigawatt hours, in the worst case scenario, gap, 
that needs to be filled in somehow. Decarbonising the economy will require phasing out fossil fuels, including those used to keep the lights on in lean times. At the same time, demand for electricity will soar. Transpower, the state-owned enterprise that runs the national grid, estimates demand will grow 70% by 2050, largely due to the uptake of electric vehicles and electrification of process heat. Thus, a dilemma. How do we get through a dry year without using fossil fuels as a backstop while also accommodating a sharp increase in demand for electricity? The Lake Onslow scheme slots in almost perfectly. As currently proposed, its storage capacity would be around 5,000 gigawatt hours, the current worst-case shortfall for a dry year. It's a neat solution in that it sort of solves all our problems, Jen Purdy from Otago University says. It would have a massive impact on the market. But how that would work in the market, and who would pay the $4 billion to build it, is unknown. There was a lot of things like that where you'd think, what the f***? Coming soon from Stuff, a new 12-part documentary podcast. He was into sex every day. The Commune. Sex, drugs, and a guru called Bert. There are crimes, but this isn't a whodunit, it's a why done it. Good God, adults agreed to this? The Commune. Coming soon to your favourite podcast platform and to stuff.co.nz. You've already been welcome to Centre Point. After discovering the potential of Lake Onslow, Earl Bardsley released his findings in a journal article. His proposal was ambitious. The basin could be the upper reservoir of the world's largest pumped storage scheme, in terms of storage, he wrote, containing 10,200 gigawatt hours of potential energy. This figure possibly means nothing to you, so here's a quick primer. There are two important measurements for a scheme like this. Operating capacity, which is measured in watts, and storage capacity, measured in watt hours. The operating capacity is how much electricity can be generated at a given moment. At Onslow, this is likely around 1,000 megawatts, slightly more than the Huntley Power Station, currently the country's most powerful generator. For comparison, the Three Gorges Dam in China can generate 22,500 megawatts. So Onslow's not very powerful. What makes it special is its storage capacity. Because the basin is so large, it can hold astonishing amounts of water, which would be slowly released through its small operating capacity. Think of it like two full Coke bottles, one small and one large, both tipped upside down. If they have the same size neck, they empty at the same speed, regardless of how much liquid they hold. Earl Bardsley's early proposal of 10,200 gigawatt hours has since been revised down to 5,000 gigawatt hours. But that's still enormous. The world's largest lithium battery storage facility, for example, can store 1,600 megawatt hours. Onslow is more than 3,000 times larger. Onslow could hold more potential energy than every existing hydro lake in New Zealand combined, effectively doubling the available storage. Most pumped hydro schemes measure their storage capacity in hours or days. Onslow, if starting at full capacity, could generate electricity continuously for nearly six months. As far as plausible ideas from academics go, 
It was about as ambitious as they come. One might expect it to be a bombshell, but after Bardsley proposed it, it vanished. In Bardsley's telling, he couldn't get anyone interested in taking it further. He submitted a proposal for more research to a national science fund, but it was turned down because it didn't contain any new science. No private companies were interested because the idea had limited commercial value. In the New Zealand academic system, your career and your status and your security are dependent on the external funds you get, Bartsley says. Onslow was a disaster for me in terms of getting recognition from research funding. And so, a good idea languished. For more than a decade, nothing further was published on the topic. Bardsley returned to his hydrology work. And yet, it stuck in his head. He had one more avenue to explore, which came to fruition in 2018. That year, Bardsley worked with a PhD student, Dr. Mohamed Majid, to elaborate on the Onslow proposal, resulting in a thesis which put meat on the bones of his early proposal. It proved timely. At the same time, the Interim Climate Change Committee, ICCC, was working on a report outlining how New Zealand's electricity sector could be 100% renewable by 2035 and how, in doing so, it could fix the dry year problem. Among the group's members was Dr Keith Turner, an engineer and a former chief executive of Meridian Energy, who was aware of the Onslow proposal and has since advocated for it. The ICCC report included an updated analysis of the engineering cost of an Onslow scheme and comparisons to other potential solutions, including a pumped hydro scheme at Lake Taupo. Of all the ideas the ICCC considered, Onslow was the most promising. But it had serious hurdles to overcome. Its analysis found there were, quote, very significant consenting and commercial risks associated with a project of this nature and large size, unquote. There was another issue. Economists use a measure, something called marginal abatement cost, to find the economic cost of avoiding climate pollution. In Onslow's case, it would cost $250 to avoid every tonne of pollution. Better than the other options considered, but much higher than the cost of carbon under the emissions trading scheme. It would be an expensive method of cutting emissions. Nevertheless, the committee recommended the government investigate further, First, the government appeared reluctant. In a cabinet paper outlining the response to the report, the Onslow option was described as having, quote, significant trade-offs with environmental goals, unquote. But then the winds changed. In July 2020, the government pledged $30 million to a feasibility study at Onslow, and another $70 million a few months later. Minister for Energy, Dr. Megan Woods, has been publicly enthusiastic about the project as has Environment Minister David Parker, both of whom would likely have the most political influence on its future. It has created an air of inevitability. What could stop it? Onslow, on paper, is close to ideal. But it can't exist only on paper. It must exist in the real world, as a jaw-droppingly large infrastructure project in a sensitive environment, both ecologically and economically. Several experts spoken to by staff questioned the project's viability. I would predict evaporation would be major, says Sir Alan Mark, a plant ecologist who has done field research in the area. I have measured evaporation at different elevations on the nearby Old Man Range, and at the mid-elevations, as per Onslow, it is quite considerable. Evaporation refers to the water in the lake, which will naturally disappear over time, in this context 
water is power, valuable electricity drifting away on the wind. The amount of evaporation at Onslow could amount to as much as 15% per year, draining the lake of its profit-generating potential. Bardsley, for his part, has wondered about this too. In a soon-to-be-published paper, he proposes methods for filling the lake with more water to compensate for evaporation, but whether they'll be viable remains to be seen. Another issue is how to fill the lake in the first place. I haven't seen any serious discussion of this yet, says Dr. Jeff Bertram, an economist at Victoria University of Wellington. Bertram points out two likely locations, the Clutha River above the Roxborough Dam and below it. Taking water from above the dam will take generation capacity from the dam's owners, Contact Energy, which might request compensation. Below the dam is further away from Onslow, increasing the pumping cost and potentially causing environmental issues in the river. Given the scale of water required, both come with a cost and would require significant energy usage. Even Bardsley, who is understandably protective of the idea he conceived, is open about some concerns. One he raises himself is whether there will be suitable clay earth nearby for building the dam. If not, it would need to be trucked up at significant cost. The connective tissue of these possible problems is money. The latest construction cost estimate of $4 billion, several experts tell stuff, is almost certainly too low. Recent developments in Australia have increased this concern. The Snowy 2.0 scheme, announced in 2017, is an extension of an existing pumped hydro scheme in the mountains of New South Wales. Hailed as a nation-building project, it has since run into chronic cost overruns and delays. The initial estimated cost of $2 billion has blown out to at least $5.1 billion and potentially much more. Its expected completion date of 2021 has been pushed back to late 2026. As one commentator described it, Snowy 2.0 has become a white elephant. Many of that project's problems were the unavoidable consequence of a global pandemic, but questions about the scheme's viability, both economically and environmentally, had swirled from the outset. Onslow would be even larger, and in a country with a history of cost blowouts on large infrastructure projects like dams. Construction of the scheme is likely to require between 3,000 and 5,000 workers. With economy-wide labour shortages and few immigrant workers, there is no obvious labour pool to draw from. It's significant because in all likelihood, the construction cost would be borne by taxpayers, not a private company. If you view it from a commercial point of view, there's no value in it, Bardsley says. There was simply no motivation, and still isn't, for any commercial companies to construct it or even be interested in it. The simple and blunt reason for this is that Onslow would, ideally, lower prices when demand is high by flooding the market with stored electricity. It wouldn't make economic sense for a power company to spend billions of dollars to lower the price of its product. Critics of the electricity sector have pointed to this dynamic as a significant flaw in the market and a barrier to decarbonising the economy. Time for another digression. How the electricity market works. It's dominated by five companies that are both generators and retailers, gen tailors, which have an outsized influence on prices and an economic incentive to keep prices high. The spot price, 
the wholesale price which the gin tailors pay, is set every 30 minutes. Generators offer to supply electricity at a particular price to meet the demand. Those offers are ranked from least to most expensive and deployed in that order. If a generator's electricity is used, they are paid the spot price, which is the highest price among the offers used. Those who offer to generate at a higher price miss out. This can have a perverse outcome. When demand is high, it becomes likely the most costly generators, gas and coal, are used, raising the spot price and benefiting all the generators, even those supplying cheaper renewables. In a recent paper on the wholesale market, the Electricity Authority, which regulates the sector, acknowledged this system has likely affected the expansion of renewables. Since the market was privatised in the 1980s, residential power prices have increased around 80%. What were once among the cheapest power prices in the world are now middling. There have been successes too, blackouts are rare, and the share of renewables has remained high, but the structure of the system gives no incentive to fix the dry year problem or to fully decarbonise the sector. This has led to some scepticism about Onslow. Is it just papering over the need for structural reforms? This is Think Big All Over Again, George Bertram, The Economist, says. Ministers have a big shiny project to wave at the electorate and an excuse for doing nothing about the real problems with the electricity market. Bertram doesn't think it will lower prices either. Not if the industry has anything to do with it, he says. With all of these barriers, perhaps the most significant is at the lake itself. For many decades, Aotearoa has faced a wetlands crisis. Around 10% of the original wetland extent remains. Year after year, more and more are drained, flooded or developed. One of the few that's left, and one of the best, happens to be at Lake Onslow. If you look from above, two swirling strands cascade away from the lake. The intricate patterns look like tattoos on the landscape. They are some of the most significant remaining wetlands in the country, and a rare example of a scroll plane. When the Department of Conservation, DOC, reviewed the ecological values there, it concluded the wetlands were of, quote, considerable scientific importance and nationally significant because of their size, intactness, range of hydrology and diversity of plant communities. Several highly endangered plant species are found there and populations of what may be the country's most endangered native fish, the Teviot flathead Galaxias. If Onslow goes ahead, those wetlands will be destroyed. It is a moral quandary that has led to differing opinions among environmentalists. Is it worth destroying a locally significant ecosystem to fight climate change? For some, the answer is, cautiously, yes. We're strongly in favour of the Onslow proposal, in principle, says Gary Taylor, chief executive of the Environmental Defence Society. What's different about it is that, conceptually, it's not fiddling around the edges, it's a big, heroic step change project. Taylor and his group have fought for stronger wetland protections for years, including in the courts. But climate change, he says, is a global problem, which we have obligations to mitigate as much as possible. To my mind, it's almost like we need to approach Onslow with a new way of thinking. It has such a big potential impact on our ability to mitigate climate change effects, it trumps the local effects. That's putting it bluntly. Taylor suggests a compromise. 
the scheme would likely require a law change to proceed. What if, at the same time, you secured a quid pro quo, like banning any future hydro schemes? Forrest and Bird has been more cautious. It's understood the group wrote to the government raising concerns, but it doesn't have a formal position on the project yet, other than to advocate for more investigation of other options. There have been discussions within the environmental movement about the trade-offs. Why bother having rules protecting wetlands if they can be bypassed for individual projects? Why not reduce our demand for electricity, rather than accept growth as inevitable? Is sustainable growth even possible, or is it an oxymoron? Among those raising these questions is the Central Otago Environmental Society, the local environment group. It, too, is yet to decide on a formal position, but it is wary of the precedent. If we were to support Lake Onslow, Chairman Phil Murray says, how would we be assured that we won't be asked to support yet another similar proposal in the near future that has clear environmental losses that will never be restored? Murray says we need to confront some fundamental aspects of our existence. Can an economy built on fossil fuels continue as it is, simply by changing our energy inputs? What is the government's commitment to protecting indigenous biodiversity and natural landscapes, if it's willing to override them when convenient? Before any of us can answer the question of how we feel about Lake Onslow, he says, we need to tackle some quite big issues that we've been dodging for a while now. Whether Onslow goes ahead will be decided by the end of the year. Among the many issues the government needs to consider are the views of mana whenua, and how best to uphold the principles of kaitiakitanga, if that's even possible. More information on that, as well as initial geotechnical and environmental investigations, are expected to be released in June 2022. Whatever decision is made, to pursue or not pursue Onslow, will be a major one. It will take nearly a decade for a new Lake Onslow to be constructed and filled. By the time it is ready to go, the electricity system will be stretched to capacity. Several dry years may have been and gone. Many tons of Indonesian coal will have been burned, its carbon drifting into the lower atmosphere and contributing to floods and droughts. For its supporters, the go-ahead can't come soon enough. Would it be possible to reach 100% renewable or close to it without Onslow? says Dr Ian Mason, the Canterbury Uni Energy Researcher. Possibly. But I think more research would need to be done into that to quantify the alternative and to see how long it would take to implement all that. You know, I'm an academic. I'm all in favour of research and development, but the time for that to be prioritised or used as an excuse for doing nothing is long gone. For now, it is an anxious wait, especially for the man who started it all. Earl Bardsley, a man with a map, a list of criteria, and a good idea. If Onslow proceeds, it will be many things. The largest national infrastructure project in decades. A tool to decarbonise the electricity sector. A destroyer of wetlands. An economic behemoth. The most significant contribution to the New Zealand economy to emerge from a university. And, most of all, a very good idea finally getting its due. This is like a single maverick academic coming out of the woodwork with an idea, Bartley says. We always come up with ideas, of course, and half of them are quite stupid. But this is an example of how the universities can have a role. If it goes ahead, 
It's going to be one of the most dramatic seismic changes that's happened in the whole of New Zealand's energy scene, and indeed in the wider economy. I guess, personally, I take some pride in that, if it ever happens. That was The Electric Lake on The Long Read From Stuff, written by Charlie Mitchell, read by Adam Dudding, and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.